Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we will read a few verses from verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Amen. We've considered the Ten Commandments with our shorter catechism, looking at the duties that each commandment requires and the sins that are forbidden. And that moved us to an obvious question that we considered last time. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The short answer, of course, is no. No mere man since the fall is able to do this. However, Adam, before he fell, could keep the law. And one extraordinary person since the fall, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, has perfectly kept the law for us and for our salvation. But no one in the world today who is either not a Christian or who is a Christian can keep the law perfectly. So that even we as believers, as we strive to render obedience to God from sincere hearts, we know that ultimately we have to await our glorification uh, that we might be able to give God the obedience that he requires. So we sin every day in thought and word and deed. We come then this evening to question and answer 83, which really is another explanatory question with regard to obedience. And it asks, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others? It's a very short answer. I direct you to the larger catechism. I wasn't able to do a, a thorough comparison, but it is amazing the length of the answer to this question in the larger catechism. It is certainly one of the longest answers that you will find. And so you should study that. It will tell you more in a concise way than I am able to cover with you this evening. But what this answer here does is it summarizes biblical teaching, informing us that some sins are worse than others. 
I think sometimes we misunderstand that. Some sins are worse than others. We might turn to a passage like John chapter 8, who he who is without sin cast the first stone. And we wrongly conclude there that because we're all sinners, we are all equal in our sin. That is not the case according to Scripture. I direct your attention to the portion that we read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 8, where the Lord takes the prophet by a vision on a tour of the temple in Jerusalem. And it is in the context of the Lord bringing judgment and taking his people into captivity. And in verse 3 of Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel sees an image of jealousy at the door to the inner temple court. And he's told this is a great sin. But when we come to verse 6, look carefully at what God says. He said, Furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel commit there? That I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. So we have a com comparative here. There is more to see. And what we're looking at is getting progressively worse. And so he takes him to a door and lets him see through the wall. And it's a room full of likely priests and Levites. And the walls are covered with idols. And there are 70 men in this room with censers. We come to verse 12 and 13. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. He's shown women weeping for the God Hamuz. Verse 15, it gets worse. 25 at the altar with their backs toward the sanctuary, worshipping the sun. Verse 15, then said he unto me, hast thou seen this, O son of man, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. The Lord is clearly teaching us here that some sins are worse than others. And Ezekiel's tour of the temple is a tour of escalating heinousness of Judah's sin. Well then, consider in the first place this evening, all sins are heinous to God. All sins are heinous to God. And the catechism uses that word heinous. It means very wicked. And indeed, the answer reminds us that all of our sins are done in the sight of God. Some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. But all of these sins are committed in the sight of a God who is infinite in holiness and in righteousness and indeed who is the pure and perfect opposite to us in our sinfulness. But God sees your sins, sees my sins. All of our sins are committed before him. 
All of our open sins are committed before him, but it's more than that. All of our secret sins are just as open to God as our open sins are. We sang earlier in Psalm 90 and verse 8, Our sins, thou and iniquities, dost in thy presence place, and setst our secret faults before the brightness of thy face. He hears all of your words. He knows all of your wicked thoughts. He discerns every intention and motivation of your heart. There is nothing that we do not perform in the sight of God. You ought to remember that when you're trying to secretly cover your sins. Who are you fooling? Are you more concerned about a man or a woman seeing your sin than God? It would seem so too often, wouldn't it? That we can sin where only God sees us, where there's no chance of any person seeing us. And yet we wouldn't do that thing in the presence of another person. All of our sins are heinous to God. They're performed in his sight. So there's no sin that is not heinous. And that means that there are no little sins. Some sins are worse than others, but there are no little sins. We, we don't want to fall into the perspective of polite society that speaks of things like white lies and guilty little pleasures. There are no little sins because every sin is an offense against an infinite God. There's no distinction in scripture between mortal sins and venial sins the way the Roman Catholic Church will teach us. Mortal sins being those that are worthy of hell. Venial sins being less serious offenses that deny you God's help, but that can be purged by you. And so purgatory is an invented place where you can deal with those venial sins. But in scripture, all sins are mortal. All sins are heinous. Because one sin committed against an infinite God brings the sentence of death and an eternal hell. And think about this, children and young people, if you've never thought about it before, in order for one sin to be saved, cleansed, in order for one sin to be cleansed and, and uh, us to be reconciled unto God, what would it require? It would still require the life and death of Jesus Christ to bear the infinite wrath of God and to satisfy divine justice for the breach of his law. So when we talk this evening about some sins being worse than others, it's not a doctrine that we then begin to weigh our sins and think, well, this one's not as bad as the next. My son asked me this evening, would people do that? Does anybody think like that? If some, some sins are, are worse than others, well, maybe I'll commit this one, but not this one. Well, I hope nobody actually reasons like that in their mind, but logically, 
But practically we do, don't we? Think of the big sins in your mind that you wouldn't commit. And the little sins that you're not willing to mortify. You might have a man and he's not, he, he wouldn't run off and physically commit adultery in his wife, but he'll play about on his phone. What's, what's he actually saying? He's saying, well, some sins are worse than others, so I'm going to do the ones that aren't as bad. This is not a doctrine for you to grade your sin in that way so that you can take some of your sin lightly. The end of this doctrine is that we see the immensity of all of our sins. We begin with immensity. We recognize that we can add aggravations on top. So all sins are heinous to God. And for but one sin, Jesus would need to die. Secondly, some sins are worse in themselves. Some sins are worse in themselves. The scripture teaches this in many different ways. There are some sins in themselves, before we think of anything else, that are worse than others. And that shouldn't be a difficult concept for you to understand because we make distinctions and great offenses in our own laws, don't we? We recognize that some offenses are worse than others. So we would not deal with murder the same way that we might deal with petty theft or shoplifting. We get the concept. But we find the Lord Jesus even giving us help here. You might not immediately think of it, but remember that portion we were looking at in Luke chapter 6 when he talks about the moat and the beam. What was the problem? The problem was that a man was measuring another person's sin without having a proper measure of his own, and he was getting it wrong. But Christ's point was not, you must never judge or assess another person in his faults, Christ actually confirms the fact that there are moats and there are beams. There are things that are bigger, more serious than other things. And then we saw it in Ezekiel chapter 8 where God speaks of great abomination and then says to Ezekiel, I'm going to show you greater abomination. Things are getting worse. But if you turn to John's gospel, Chapter 19, verse 11, you'll see Jesus explicitly teach us that some sins are worse than others. John chapter 19 and verse 11, when our Lord Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except that were given thee uh, from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee, listen, hath the greater sin. He's not saying that Pilate is not guilty of sin. He's referring to Judas, who's guilty of greater sin than Pilate. You also see this principle at work when God warns of, for, of greater punishments for greater sins. And so Matthew chapter 11 he warns the people of Galilee, woe unto thee Carasin, woe unto thee Bethsaida, woe unto thee Capernaum. What's the problem? Jesus preached, Jesus did many miracles in that region, and yet many of the people did not repent. 
and he says, you are so privileged in comparison with Sodom and Gomorrah, even though Sodom and Gomorrah are famous for their sins. And he says something shocking. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you. What are you to conclude? But that their sin, though not sodomy, not that the excess of these pagan cities was worse and will be punished more severely by God at the last day. We don't tend to think of that, do we? Religious sins can be the worst sins of all. We'll say more of that on that later. So in what ways are some sins worse than other sins in themselves? First of all, first table sins are worse than second table sins. What I mean by that, the first four commandments over against the next six commandments. Why are sins against the first four commandments worse than those against the next six? Because the first four govern our duty directly toward God. We are to have no other gods before him. He is to be first. We are to worship him only the way that he appoints. We are not to worship him with idols or any other way not appointed in his word. We are not to take his name in vain or commit blasphemy. And then the second table concern our duties to our neighbor, to, to one another. And so we obey God, we might say, immediately in that regard. We're doing the action immediately to the person and indirectly to God. But the first four deal with our direct obedience face to face in that sense with God. Sins committed directly against God in this way are more heinous. It is as though we literally spit in the face of the Almighty. We have to note this well. Because we are not God conscious enough. We might be concerned about sin. But we may very likely think sins against men or sins especially against me are the worst kinds of sin, but that is not God's view of sin. Listen to what the Puritan Thomas Vincent comments. He says, Idolatry is more heinous than adultery. Sacrilege is more heinous than theft. Blasphemy against God is more heinous than speaking evil of our neighbor. But isn't that clear even in the Old Testament when you look at the penalties? The things that God appointed as judgment for particular breaches of his law. And what do you discover? Blasphemy and idolatry carried the death penalty, but slander against a man didn't. Nor did theft unless it was the crime of man stealing. It is far more serious 
who rob God of his glory than to rob men of their possessions. Well, society needs to learn this lesson because in all of our concern with sins and wrongs against our fellow men, we want to fix poverty, we want to deal with social injustice, and when you look in the Bible, God most certainly is concerned about issues of biblical social justice. But the greatest problem that we face as a nation, and the thing that is bringing the greatest judgment of God against this nation, is our godless idolatry. The church needs to learn this too. If you were to take this question to the average conservative, evangelical, and even re re reformed church, what is worse, worse, abortion, murder, or the defamation of God's name in our national idolatry? What is worse? they will likely tell you that it's abortion and it's murder, but it's not. We're stuck looking at everything instinctively, horizontally, because God is not high enough in our thoughts. Our low views of God give us a faulty view of sin. So we have conservative Christians and they're concerned about sexual immorality and the transsexual madness and which of two wicked men is going to become president. And the same people think that they can just decide willy-nilly how God is to be worshipped. And if you mention the regulative principle or you talk about the Sabbath, they think you're straining at gnats. That has to change, brethren. That has to change in the minds of Christians. Children, maybe you have heard or read about John Knox, who famously once said that he feared one mass being said in Scotland more than a French fleet arising, uh, uh, appearing on the horizon for war. Why, why did he say that? Because he understood this, that some sins are more serious in the sight of God than others, and top of the list are first table sins, and in particular idolatry. He feared the mass because it was so wicked and such a provocation of God. Had the issue recently of a minister suggesting that people should go to uh, one of these homosexual weddings and show support in Christian love. And people rightly responded against that. And one notable minister, he wrote an ar article against it and people were sharing this article around and the article was good in itself. And I saw it somewhere online and I put the comment, is this not the same man who says it's okay to attend a Roman Catholic mass? I got pushback. Well, what do you mean? The mass is far worse. You think going and giving your approbation to a gay wedding is bad, and it is. You going and sitting when someone purports 
to transubstantiate bread and make it in to the body and bone and blood and soul of the Lord Jesus Christ and then offer it as a sacrifice to God. We're not thinking right. You see, the church is part of the problem here. Secondly, here we can say some second table sins are worse than others. So first table sins are worse than second table sins, but some second table sins are worse than others. They're not all equal, and Scripture shows this. So theft is more heinous than coveting. Because coveting is the desire in the heart after the thing. Theft is putting that into action and actually taking the thing and violating the person's right to his property. Adultery is more serious than theft. Adultery is more serious than theft. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. And 32. Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A proverb is telling you that there is a sense of sympathy to a man who steals when he is in need, but there's no sympathy, none whatsoever, for the person who commits adultery. You see it in the penalties of the law. Here the principle is restitution. He will give again twice as much, five times as much. It mentions here seven times as much. But the man who commits adultery does not pay restitution. He forfeits his life. Because some sins in the sight of God are more heinous than others. Some forms of sexual sin are worse than others. So that homosexual sins are worse than heterosexual sins. Here's an area where we flatten everything that I warned you about at the beginning. So you speak against homosexuality and then someone will come back to you and say, well, you struggle with sexual sin as well, don't you? Don't try to tell me that you don't deal with heterosexual lust. And of course we deal with heterosexual lust and we seek to mortify it before the Lord where it is misplaced. But the two things are not equal. One is more heinous in the sight of God than others. Because one actually expresses a natural desire of human sexuality that God has given to us as a gift. The problem is it's a desire that is being expressed out with the bounds God has appointed it to be expressed in. In other words, there's nothing wrong with heterosexual desire. You need to channel it according to the commandment of God. But homosexual desire and action 
is unnatural. It is totally perverted. It is an inversion of nature. It is described by God as a vile affection. Heterosexual desire is not a vile affection. Homosexual desire in and of itself is a vile affection, and from beginning to end it is an abomination. Likewise, bestiality. Likewise, pedophilia. They're worse than heterosexual sins. And that's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. You forgot me. You've turned to idols. You worship birds and beasts and four-footed creatures. And I give you what? First stage, heterosexual sins. I'll give you up to your lusts. And if you still won't learn, it's going to get worse. You will exchange the natural use of the woman and the man for that which is against nature. Men with men working that which is unseemly as an evidence of a reprobate mind that cannot even now judge between things that are obvious in nature. Don't be fooled by the propaganda of this age, even in the church. Some forms of sexual sin are worse than others. So some, some sins are worse in themselves. That brings us to the third thing. Some sins are worse than others because of their aggravations. Because of their aggravations. They can be the same sin as another sin, but worse because of context or aggravations that are added to it. There are many areas we could apply this. I want to consider four main areas tonight. The first is that this, that sins can be aggravated by the person sinning. By the person sinning. So, for example, the sins of older people can be more serious than the sins of younger people. You say, why? How? Because the older person sins further down the road of a life of greater instruction and experience that ought to have taught him wisdom. Job chapter 32, verse 7, the multitude of years should teach wisdom. Therefore, an old fool is worse than a young fool. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. You're to expect that. It ought not to be bound in the heart of an old man. But here's the old man. Maybe he sins in exactly the same way it looks like to the younger person, but his sin is worse because it's against the lifetime of learning and experience and seeing the examples of other people, all kinds of things poured into it. Then the sins of privileged people are worse than those who have not been so privileged. Jesus tells us that to whom much is given, much shall be required. 
That means those of you who are growing up in a Christian home. Your sins are worse than the same sins in those who are not growing up in a Christian home. James chapter 4 tells us that if any man knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And you know, and maybe these people around here, they don't know, but a, a, a tenth of the things that you know about the Bible. And so they can be going on doing things ignorantly, but you, but, but you know, don't you? It even gets worse depending who your parents are. So the sins of children in a Christian home are worse than the sins of other children who don't grow up in a Christian home. The sins of ministers' children are even worse. You say hi. Study the Old Testament and see the standard that the priest's children were held to that were different than the standard of the average Israelite's child. You study it, the penalties were worse. The standards were higher. Why? Because the child is a child of the person who is in a position of prominence within the church. To sin in a Christian home, worse than to sin in a non-Christian home. To sin in a minister's home or an elder's home, even worse. You need to understand that, children. All of you in Christian homes, particularly those of you who are in the children of office bearers' homes. You say, well, that's not really fair. Even society understands this, children and young people. If you were the child of the king or queen, would you not be held to a higher standard? Would you not be expected to live in a particular way? If you were the child of a prominent person in the community, would your sin not be more scandalous than the sin of an average person living in obscurity up the road from that man? Everybody knows this. Certain sins make the news, don't they? Sins of people in position are also worse than those of the sins of those who are under them. This applies to leaders in the family, in the church, and in the state. For those who are in authority are to obey God for themselves and also set an example for others who are under them that they might follow. Let me take that into your home. That means parents, your sins are worse than your children's sins. Same sin, worse for you. Your sins contradict the nurture of the Lord and they set an example to your children of wickedness that they will be inclined to follow. 
The sin of rulers in society is worse than the sins of those who are under them, so that Jeroboam is not only guilty for his personal sin of idolatry, but for the public ramifications of that, because he caused Israel to sin. When you read the Old Testament, it doesn't just say, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who, who sinned himself in idolatry. He's notorious for having that little phrase behind his name who caused Israel to sin. So in the church, pastors and elders who are to be an example to the flock, if they sin, they discredit the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers that we spoke of even on the Lord's Day who claim to teach in the name of the Lord Jesus and take prominence in the church only to teach error and destroy the people of God. You know, it's sinful to be a heretic. It's sin more sinful to be a heretic in the pulpit. You see what we're saying? The position aggravates the seriousness of the sin. But then, secondly here, we've looked at the aggravation of the person sinning. Secondly, sin is aggravated by what you sin against. By what you sin against. It's tied to this idea of privilege. We're thinking here of sinning against light and knowledge. And so there are degrees of light that God gives to men. Some only have the light of nature. They don't have the Bible. They have the voice of conscience. But then others have the light of nature, the voice of conscience, and the revelation of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament scriptures. And when you bring that privilege to sin, you start to see again that some sins are more serious than others. So first of all here, note, to sin against clear commands is worse than to sin without them. To sin against clear commands is worse than to sin without them. The Apostle Paul makes this point in, in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says the Gentiles sinned, but they sinned without the law. The Jews sinned with the law, and they will be judged accordingly. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and look there first of all at verse 12. Romans 2 verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as, as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And then he applies this later in verse 22 and 23. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. 
be the point. Gentiles all under sin, Jews all under sin, but the issue is unto the Jew was committed the oracle of God. We have to consider our sins in the light of the light that we have received. Very simply, fewer of your sins and my sins are sins of ignorance. You do many things that you know that you're wrong, that are wrong, where you consciously reject the truth that you know in order to commit sin or continue in sin. Maybe one of your friends is drawing you aside or maybe a relationship is drawing you aside and you think, well, I'm just doing what this person is doing. You're not. You're doing something far, far worse. It looks the same. God does not see it the same. Secondly, to sin against the voice of conscience is worse than to sin when the voice of conscience is not heard. It's another aspect of sinning with our eyes open willfully in the face of God's warning in your heart. God has given you this warning system in conscience. It's like an alarm, safety alarm that goes off, that tells you not to go a certain direction. And when conscience works, and you put your hand over its mouth, and you gag it, so that it won't make you uncomfortable in pursuing the path that you know to be wrong. You continue to sin in spite of this, presumptuously, willfully rejecting the truth of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Your sin becomes way worse than if you had been truly deceived into the same sin. Thirdly, to sin against the law was bad, but to sin against the gospel is even worse. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. The Old Testament believer had Old Testament revelation. He had more than the nations. His sin was worse than theirs. The New Testament believer has Old Testament and New Testament revelation. We sin against the greater light. Our sin is worse than theirs. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now listen carefully. Here's a comparative statement of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. To paraphrase what the Apostle is saying here is if you think it was bad under Old Testament law, you violate that, you die at the mouth of two or three witnesses. The sin against light in the New Testament is not less because Jesus has come. It's more. It's more. 
to be given over to idolatry and to dance in a frenzy naked at the foot of Mount Sinai is not as serious as to do it at the foot of Mount Calvary. Because the gospel is the clearest revelation of God's grace and the greatest demonstration of his love that the world has ever seen. To sin against the exodus from Egypt. is nowhere near as serious as to sin against the proclamation of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! Sodom is going to be happier in hell than you. Because Sodom never encountered the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sodom encountered the witness of an inconsistent Old Testament patriarch. But Jesus didn't walk in their streets performing miracles and proclaiming the gospel of peace. Our sins are aggravated by what we sin against. The light of nature, conscience, scripture. Third area that we aggravate our sins. Our sins are aggravated by how we sin. By how we sin. We're not thinking here about the specific sin, but how the sin is performed. We're thinking, is the sin internal or external? Is the sin in public or is the sin in private? Because the more outward and more public sins are going to be worse than the more inward and private sins. So the sin in the heart is not as sinful as to act out that sin in the life. They're both sinful, but one is more sinful than the other. So yes, we go to Matthew 5 and Jesus says, you've heard it said at all time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that anyone who looketh upon a woman to lust in his heart after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. Don't make the mistake of, of thinking Jesus is flattening these two things. His goal is to teach them that they didn't understand the spirituality of the law. But we can't say, well, someone's lost it in their heart. That's the same as someone who's jumped into bed with another person. They're not the same. Just in the same way that the, the, the evil thought in the heart, the murderous thought in the heart, is not as serious as the angry word upon the tongue, which is not as serious as violently murdering a person in act. They're all the same category of sin, but they're not all the same sin in degree. The sin in the heart is not as sinful as the sin or to act it in the life. 
then to sin in public is worse than to sin in private. And this is particularly true of Christians because when we sin in public, people see our sins. And they, on the one hand, either follow our sins or on the other, they point them out and they employ them to blaspheme God. That should be a motive in your own heart. There's one minister, I can't remember who, at the end of his life, he thanked God that God had not made his secret sins and his private sins public. But the desire was for God's glory because he knew what a disgrace sins in public are to the name of the Lord. You can see it in Scripture, the catastrophe of Saul and Absalom and these people who rebel against the Lord and his appointed king and then the cry goes up in one place, doesn't it? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in Ascalon. Why? Because it would give occasion to the Philistines to blaspheme the name of Israel's God. We aggravate our sins by how we sin. But then fourthly, you aggravate your sins by who you sin against. Who you sin against. To sin against those who are closest to you is worse than to sin against those are against others. What do I mean by that? Well, those that you're closest to, that you're bound up more intimately with in, in a relationship of intimate love, it's worse to violate that than when that degree of intimacy is not there. A classic example of this would be marriage, wouldn't it? So two unmarried people in the Old Testament, they came together in fornication. What was the penalty? It wasn't death. But when you sinned in that way against your covenant partner in life, stakes just went through the roof. You sinned against your wife. You sinned against your husband. So the worst people to sin against children our parents. The worst people for you to sin against children are your parents. The worst people for you to sin against husbands are your wives. You see this in the Old Testament. If a young person cursed his father and mother, serious penalty. You could lose your life for it. If he cursed another associate or neighbor or loose friend upon the street, the penalty was, was not as severe. You see that? What's God teaching you? Some sins are worse than others. And to sin against the saints of God is worse than to sin against others. Your fellow Christians who bear the image of Christ 
for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died. What are we told in scripture? It is better that a millstone were put around a man's neck and that he were cast into the midst of the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones that believe in Jesus to stumble. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You could also look at Romans chapter 14. And here the apostle is dealing with things indifferent. Things that aren't even sins, but your weak brother thinks are sins. And the danger is that he is going to be taking offense and stumble. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11 through 13. And, though, and, and through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth lest I make my brother to offend. You see the love, the closer bond of love, the intimacy there, the care for the soul of the brother in this area, even of indifference. Finally, your sins are aggravated by when you sin. By when you sin. Sins on the Lord's day are worse than your sins on other days. Our forefathers in the faith used to describe them as double sins. Think of this. Is it a sin for a man to get drunk? Yeah. Is it not a double sin for a man to get drunk on the Sabbath? when he should be sanctifying the whole of that day in the public and private exercises of God's grace? Is it sinful to watch immoral things on your phone? Yeah. Every day. Is it more sinful to watch those things on your phone on the Sabbath? Of course it is. It's now a double sin. And yet many Christians don't even have the conscience to forgo those things on the Sabbath. You think that that would even sink into their brain. It's bad enough. They're doing it on the other day. But their conscience is so seared that they can't even resist their sin on the day that is devoted, the holy day that is devoted unto God. Well, a few things in conclusion. Some, some sins are worse than others. First of all, use what you have learned to keep you from sin. You have to see the serious of all sin, that it is heinous. But then we add to the seriousness of our sins many aggravations. What you need to do is take those aggravations and turn them into motives to mortify your sin. I'm in this particular station in life. How can I sin? I'm the child of a Christian parent. How can I sin? I have all of this light and knowledge of the Old Testament and New Testament. How can I sin? 
take the things which are aggravations and weaponize them to put sin to death in your life. Secondly, use what we've learned to help you examine your life and confess your sin. And that will help you to see if you're beginning to understand the seriousness of your sin. Because if we grasp this teaching this evening, a general confession of sin will not do. We won't just come to the Lord and say, and Lord, forgive my sins. No, we realize that we commit specific sins and we recognize that our specific sins can be more serious because of the context and all of these other aggravations. So before the Lord, we have to deal with that honestly. Lord, I've sinned this sin, but I'm a father. And my children saw it. Lord, I sinned this sin, but it wasn't in private. It was in the workplace and everybody saw it. You see, confession of our sins involves weighing our sins before God, including these aggravations so that, so that we might repent with the appropriate grief and hatred of those sins. And thirdly, use the seriousness of sin with all of its aggravations to stir up your appreciation for Jesus Christ because he died for all of our sins. He died for each of our specific sins and all of their aggravations. All the guilt and sinfulness of our sinfulest sins was laid upon him. And we come to him and he forgives them all. But there's one that he doesn't forgive. The most heinous sin in all the Bible. The sin that is unto death that there is no forgiveness for. People say, well, what is the sin which is unto death? It's to reject Jesus Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel, to refuse to come to him and to resist the Holy Ghost as he strives in your heart under the preaching of the word. All manner of other sins and their aggravations can and will be forgiven, but this one, that's why it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Bethsaida, for Karazin, and for Capernaum because Christ was preached and the Holy Spirit vindicated his ministry by the miracles that he performed and the people would not come to him. Where did they go, children? They went to the hottest part of hell. Go to Christ and all of your sins and their aggravations will be washed away in his infinitely precious and powerful blood. Let's stand to pray. Our God and our Father, 
How do we even respond to this? Sometimes we don't even see our sins, never mind their aggravations. So careless. We don't weigh our lives by your law. We don't read our sins in a biblical way like this. Not seeking to excuse our sins, but actually to see how more serious they are than we think. Lord, we have no other hope. And so we run to Christ. God have mercy upon us, for we are sinners. Blot out all of our iniquities, O God, and grant that we might be renewed, that we would go forth with carefulness over our hearts, that you would teach us to mortify our sins by these motives, to confess them truly and thoroughly, and, O God, to rejoice in the forgiveness that is freely given to such sinners in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.